many people are kind of left to fend for themselves in the in standard model of care. They're really told, hey, like there's nothing wrong with you. You're just depressed, there's an antidepressant. But the people that are diagnosed, they're really given very few options with things with potential side effects and stuff that they don't really feel good on either. Welcome to the Seamland podcast. I'm your host Seamland, and today we talk with Dr. Will Cole. Will was named one of the top 50 functional medicine and integrative doctors in the US. He has written several books like Ketotarian, The Inflammation Spectrum, and his latest book, Intuitive Fasting. Will, welcome to the show. My goodness, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. Yeah, I'm also uh, a big fan of your work and uh, glad to have you on the podcast. So, um, but maybe let's start with like what drove you into becoming a functional medicine practitioner and uh, starting your own practice. Yeah, I'm so interested in health and wellness and I have been since I was a little kid. So I, I grew up kind of a weird kid, I guess, in hindsight. I, I loved learning about nutrition and the impact that food could have on one's health. And and then when I was in high school, I had my driver's license. I would I worked at a, in the States, there's a, a shoe store called Finish Line. <laughs> it's like an athletic shoe store. So I, I did that in high school and I used my paycheck, my money from my paycheck to go buy a health food at the health food store at like 16, 17, 18 years old. So I was uh, like always just naturally interested in what was out there and the options to use food as medicine and health and wellness at large. And then that evolved to wanting to be formally trained in this. So I went to an integrative medicine school, Southern California University of Health Sciences in Los Angeles. And uh, then that kind of, you know, formalized what I'm doing. I graduated and I would be writing or speaking about functional medicine online and there would be people in different states and countries and different parts of the world that would hear about what we were talking about. And this was 12, 13 years ago. Uh, so functional medicine was a little bit less, you know, popular or mainstream than it is now. Um, and yeah, so we started, we launched the clinic here as a telehealth clinic. We were actually one of the first telehealth functional medicine centers in the world is all we've done is telehealth for the past 12 years. So it's, uh, it's, Nothing's really uh, changed as far as my day job. I love my patient cases. These are like amazing people that are going through really serious things that I take very seriously that I want to find out what are the underlying impediments that are keeping them back from living the life that they were created for. Um, so these are hard journeys sometimes. These are complicated, complex journeys sometimes, but they're journeys that are they're necessary in many cases. They're journeys that are so sacred to be on, and I don't take that lightly. So every day, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., 10-hour days, that's what we're doing here, consulting people online, and I love it. And it was all born of me just being interested in, in health and wellness and, and, and medicine. I think the traditional, original medicine of, of let food be your medicine and medicine your food, uh, the original Hippocratic Oath. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's a correct message, I think. And it's yeah, quite unfortunate that you had already been like an online uh, service, sort of say before the lockdown. So I imagine the lockdown didn't have like a huge uh, negative impact on your like uh, revenue. 
It, no, the patient base is still the same. Um, if anything, people, I think, had more time to focus on themselves because they were, our world really lends itself to being distracted and procrastinating and putting ourselves, or actually the important things on the back burner, right? Mm. And we get distracted on things that ultimately at the end of the day don't really matter. So I think it really was a reckoning for many people in many different ways. Um, but it was like a slowing down, allowed them to be a little bit more introspective and pick up things that maybe they were putting off and the health being one of them. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but have you noticed any like any particular issues people struggle with more nowadays or, um, or is there something that kind of pops up more? Well, I, I mean, my top patient base are people with autoimmunity. So that's definitely a heart of mine and a passion of mine is the complexities that is autoimmunity. Um, there's in the United States alone, there's 50 million Americans. I think it's a worldwide around 250 million. I mean, that's just diagnosed. There are millions more that are somewhere on this autoimmune inflammation spectrum that I write about and speak about is that they have autoimmune components to their case. They have these autoimmune reactivity issues, but they're not necessarily going to be officially diagnosed in the conventional mainstream setting. So this is, the things that I see a lot of, and they're growing by leaps and bounds, sadly. Um, and I have no doubt that with time and as time goes on and more studies are done, I think we're going to find there's autoimmune components to other issues that we don't even consider autoimmune today. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it is a fascinating field. Um, and it's an important one because many people are kind of left to fend for themselves in, this, in the standard model of care. They're really told, hey, like there's nothing wrong with you, you're just depressed, there's an antidepressant, or it looks autoimmune, but they don't really know where to put you, they don't really know what to do, maybe take this steroid or take this immunosuppressant. Um, and there's so much ambiguity for people to like really get um, a clear answer on why they feel the way that they do. And even if they do have a quote unquote clear answer, in the form of a diagnosis, that's still not a clear solution. They're given steroids and biologics and really told that's everything that they, anything that they can do is there. Um, and then they try it. And that's where most of my patients are at is either they are in this autoimmune reactivity phase where they're not diagnosable or they're diagnosed. But the people that are diagnosed, they're really given very few options um, with things with potential side effects and stuff that they don't really feel good on either. So this is the things I see the most. It is uh, a problem, and um, it's something that I'm trying to be a part of the solution for. Mm, yeah, yeah. The numbers are quite like staggering, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, there is like this rise in, especially in the Western population, uh, where these autoimmune conditions. Uh, mm -hmm. Like, why do you think that is? What is the main cause of this uh, trend? Well, I mean, research estimates that autoimmunity is about a third of that puzzle meaning that the third of the factors that we have to consider is genetic. So there are many genes that can predispose someone for autoimmunity. There's different methylation impairments, there's different immune variants, there's different endocannabinoid gene variants, the ECS system that, that um, can increase the rate of the immune system being hyperreactive. Um, and these also seem to be in many of them seem to be X chromosome linked, meaning, you know, ten, women tend to be more um, likely to have an autoimmunity over men with a few exceptions. I think ankylosing spondylitis and a few other autoimmunity is more men centric, but for the most part, most autoimmune diseases 
And there's over a hundred different known autoimmune diseases today, things like MS and Sjogren's and ulcerative colitis, Crohn's, Hashimoto's disease or autoimmune thyroid issues, lupus. Um, those are some of the more common ones, celiac disease. Um, but then, so we have to look at that genetic component, but two thirds of it, the majority of it, meaning this, is that it's epigenetic. It's the lifestyle stuff that triggers that genetic predisposition. Because researchers estimate that the majority of our genetics haven't changed as a human race in 10,000 years. So why, does, why are we seeing this epidemic rise of autoimmunity if most of our genes haven't changed in 10,000 years? It's a, genetics alone don't explain the, the full um, breadth of the explosion of autoimmunity. Then the argument, the topic comes up of better diagnostics, which is certainly a component of it. Certainly, I, I have no doubt about it. Uh, there's more awareness, there's more interest, there's more looking into this. A generation or two ago, people just didn't, they had these weird symptoms and then they didn't even go to the doctor. There wasn't good testing. There wasn't good understanding of autoimmunity. So yes, I agree. Better diagnostics is a part of it, but it doesn't explain the totality of it. And nobody looking at the research would say that either. They know that this is growing and in, and that's part of the reason why there's better diagnostics is because more people are having these problems and it's forced technology and medicine and science to figure out what's going on and why we're seeing this. And I think the trickle down of that has been better diagnostics and more conversations with patients and their doctors. But the so to look at these two thirds, this two thirds factor, what are these epigenetics? And this is the heart of really what, what I explore in functional medicine. It's the foods we're eating or the foods we're not eating. Our food is, we are, our, our body is a chemistry lab and the foods we eat instruct our biochemistry. And these are the raw materials for a healthy modulated balanced immune system and healthy balanced inflammatory pathways and a healthy balanced microbiome, which is 75% of the immune system. So looking at the foods we're eating or not eating, looking at stress and trauma uh, research is really um, growing in this space of looking at the impact that chronic stress and past trauma has on triggering and perpetuating and amplifying autoimmune flares. And that's part of the healing journey that we work with with patients is really dealing with those past traumas that's perpetuating the, um, the flares. Looking at chronic infections, and that's a broad term, but things like Epstein-Barr virus, uh, cytomegalovirus, human herpes 6 virus, these viruses that are linked to triggering autoimmunity for some people. Lyme disease, tick-borne problems like Borrelia burgdorferi, but also Babesia and Bartonella, these uh, tick-borne issues, and other, let's just call them insect-borne issues, or animal-borne mm. issues, because um, it's beyond ticks. And then the uh, mold, biotoxins, we see a lot of mold toxicity triggering autoimmunity, and other um, environmental toxins, heavy metals, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and, and, and obviously the impact that has on the gut and dealing with these underlying gut issues. So this is the perfect storm, the confluence of factors that can trigger that genetic predisposition. And the analogy that I use is like, we all have different uh, mug sizes. Like I have a mason jar here full of tea here. And some people have big mugs, some people have small mugs. That's our genetic tolerance for stressors. Um, we can't change our mug size. We can't change that genetic tolerance to stressors, but we can change what we put in them largely. We have, a, we have influence. We have agency yeah. over our wellness to that degree. So all these things that I mentioned are things that can cause a tipping point, an overflow of, of stress. And when that cup overflows, that's your flare up. That's the, the triggering of the autoimmunity.
Well, yeah, <laughs> you did give an amazing overview, and uh, yeah, I, I agree that um, you could contribute to like just a better diagnostics, but uh, at the same time, it it kind of coincides with a lot of the other trends you see as well, the rise in obesity and diabetes and all the other uh, stress-related diseases. So yeah, it's uh, like the perfect storm of uh, getting sick uh, coming from the environment. Yeah. Um, you mentioned quite a few of these uh, epigenetic environmental factors that uh, contribute to this. Um, what do we think would be like the biggest thing uh, or biggest, what is the biggest cause or biggest uh, causes the biggest insult? Well, I think if you look at the central point, the focal point of a lot of the things I mentioned, they are disruptors of the microbiome. So if you want to kind of narrow it down to what is the impact that these chronic infections or toxicity or stress and trauma and foods, like what did those, what what insult does that have on our biochemistry? And I, I, a lot of that has to do with the gut. And it's no coincidence. I mean, that's 75, 80% of our immune system is in our gut. So to understand autoimmunity and to understand inflammation, you have to look at where the predominance of the immune system resides, which is in the gastrointestinal system. So the, the problem is, is that when we're talking about this and for years, I mean, the health space, and I've been part of that conversation is talking about gut health. Yes, that is paramount to my work. It is a central part of healing for people, um, but it's not the only component. So I don't want to be overly reductionist and say, well, just heal your gut or whatever that means right. for people. And then all your problems are going to be solved. It's not that clear cut. And the gut, even if it is that clear cut for some people, the gut takes a long time to heal when you're in an active flare. Like we're talking about a year and a half, two years. So this is not going to be like bone brothed away in like three weeks. Nice. Uh, this is going to be quite a journey with a lot of different variables, like all the other things I mentioned. But look, the disruption of the microbiome, the, the, the impact, the negative breakdown of the integrity of the intestinal lining and the environment of the microbiome is certainly a very important factor to consider. So things like SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, other forms of dysbiosis, candida, young, uh, candida yeast and fungus overgrowth, inflammation in the gut, measuring things like calprotectin and lactoferrin. These are things that I see on an almost hourly basis. So it is certainly a component for many people's case, but it's, it, and we have to look at these other factors, like how did these gut problems happen in the first place? Well, a lot of these stressors that I mentioned are mm. part of that puzzle. Mm. So it's more like the breaking point, so to say, um, or the, yeah. because the, like, you know, the, your gut is the, the point of contact between you and the world, uh, so to say. So it kind of differ, yeah. it, it, it functions in a way to dif differentiate the particles you get from the environment uh, from your host particles, like your own organism particles. And, you know, autoimmunity itself is this kind of attack, attacking off the um, host cells and host tissue. Yeah. So yeah, if your gut isn't like messed up, or like some uh, disposes there, then it would be uh, problematic for causing this. Absolutely. It's a, it's a proverbial time bomb for people because they have these issues. And then what, it, what is the straw that broke the camel's back? What is that tipping point? Um, and once things are passing through the gut that shouldn't be able to pass through the gut, then at that point, like you said, that loss of recognition of self, that molecular mimicry that can happen there, or the immune system then cross reacts against the thyroid or the musculoskeletal system or the gut or the brain. I mean, the neurological autoimmunity. I mean, this, these are staggering numbers 
And we're not, I mean, we as a society aren't really looking at what's going on here. This is going on in a lot of people's bodies to varying degrees. And that's this inflammation spectrum that I talk about. And this isn't to scare anybody. This isn't alarmist or fear mongering. This is just what we see and what's measurable on labs. And it's impacting people's quality of life to varying degrees. And the good news is that these are largely overcomable, supportable, healable, reversible, manageable things with functional medicine. So this isn't that we're talking about these sobering statistics. And I think it's important to know what we're up against because to know we have to know what we're dealing with to do something about it. But at the same time, the other side of that coin is we can do something about it. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's a message of hope and a message of, 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 of so much good things, but uh, we have to do them to see the results. Yeah, totally. So let's talk about the inflammation spectrum. So, you know, inflammation is a key part in gut health as well as uh, autoimmunity. Mm -hmm. Yes, all of those. And, and when, I, when I wrote The Inflammation Spectrum, which is my second book, it's kind of just an outpouring of what I see consulting patients online, kind of seeing these commonalities. But the, the key word here is that inflammation is a commonality between these health problems commonality, meaning we, we see this very, very often with autoimmune issues and beyond autoimmune conditions. I mean, metabolic issues, insulin resistance, other hormonal imbalances, thyroid issues, to mental health issues. I mean, in the West, we like to separate mental health from physical health. But in truth, mental health is physical health. Our brain is part of our body and the brain is not immune privileged. There are inflammatory cascades in the brain as well. And the microglial cells and the impact that has on neuroinflammatory problems and the ravaging levels of anxiety and depression and fatigue. Oh my gosh, this is things that people just settle for because it's their every day. And these are in many cases, and research shows this, inflammatory in nature too. And some of them are autoimmune inflammatory. So we have to look at this and this inflammation exists on a spectrum from low grade symptoms like mild anxiety, background anxiety, mild fatigue, weight loss resistance, maybe some bloating digestive problems on one end of the inflammation spectrum, all the way to the other end of the inflammation spectrum, which is the overt diagnosable autoimmune disease, mental health issue, diabetes, I mean, and then everything in between. So that's what I'm really exploring in the inflammation spectrum, which is very central to my, um, my work. But the, the word again is commonality. Inflammation is a commonality. I didn't say causation <laughs> because mm -hmm. yes, it can cause symptoms, right. but is what's causing the inflammation is the real big question. So that's yeah. the other thing that we're exploring in the book. And that is things like stress and trauma and gut issues and food and uh, chronic infections, et cetera. All of those upstream core things that are disrupting the microbiome and disrupting the immune system in the first place have to be de dealt with. And then inflammation levels will be calmed down. Uh, that is the true core facet that we need to be addressing. Mm, yeah. So uh, how, how do you do it? <laughs> how do you lower inflammation? Like it's very easy to get inflamed mm. in the modern world, but it's mm. harder to kind of lower it. Yeah, it is. So, I mean, we start with food in the book. Um, and I, I, so I, there's two different wings here. I think food is a good starting place because we're all eating food, hopefully, right? But like breakfast, lunch, and dinner, each is, is an opportunity to either feed inflammation or fight it. Every food 
we eat is either bringing inflammation levels up or bringing it down. So these are modulators of our biochemistry. They're instructors of our biochemistry and they're instructors of the microbiome, which is predominance of where inflammation or the immune system is being regulated. So there's a more simpler track in the book. There's a more advanced track, food intervention, food protocols that I based off of their quiz score. So the quiz that I start the book out, out with is adapted from questions that I ask patients when I'm consulting them online. And I just made it more user-friendly so they could kind of walk through a functional medicine methodology of kind of learning about their body and seeing where they're at on the inflammation spectrum. We have the quiz for free on drwillcole.com too. So people don't want to get the book and just want to like see what I'm talking about. The inflammation spectrum quiz is on the site. But it kind of shows them more or less subjectively where is where are they at on the inflammation spectrum? What are their main focal points? Because there's, I put seven main sections on this spectrum, the gut and the brain, the endocrine system of a hormonal system, the blood sugar regulatory system, which is partially hormonal, um, and looking at detoxification system, looking at the musculoskeletal system, looking at the autoimmune component, which I put it as a separate entity. Um, because again, people can have inflammation, but have it, it doesn't necessarily mean it's autoimmune, but all autoimmune is inflammatory. So right. differentiating the difference between the two molecular mimicry versus non-molecular mimicry. And then, um, what the eighth section on the inflammation spectrum is what I refer to as polyinflammation, inflammation mm -hmm. in more than one area, like inflammation in the gut can impact the, the brain through the gut brain axis and the impact that they are having on each other through the vagus nerve. So that, and then based on that quiz score, they can, they have a food plan and they'll have a toolbox with different functional medicine tools so they can lean in and tailor their own journey because we're all going through different things. So I wanted to bring the bio-individuality, sort of the customization aspect of functional medicine in a book form, which you can do a lot with. And it took me a long time to like have it make sense on paper because I'm not there to like walk someone through it. But I think we did a good job. and then. There comes a point when, like the other side of that question that you ask is, well, well what do we do? I think a, a book is a good starting place, but most of my patients, they can do something like that and they're gonna get so, they're gonna get a certain level of good. They're gonna feel a lot better than they used to with a system like that. But that's when, when you get to the point where you're at your journey where I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm better than I was, but I'm not where I need to be. That At that point, I think that's where labs come in that's when getting a functional medicine practitioner comes in because then we can see like what is the exact things that are missing here for your puzzle. And that's where most of my patients are at. They've done things that have improved their health, but they're like 50% better or they're like 60% better and maybe 70% better. And they're kind of like still struggling with these certain things that are just lingering and per persistent and not going away. And I think that's when we can take it to the next level, run labs, see what's missing here. And these things like chronic infections, mold issues, gut problems, hormonal imbalances that are, are these roadblocks with their specific health journey. And that's where we typically come in consulting people. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm also, also big like a proponent of this personalized healthcare that you have to tailor it to the individual and what's their situation. And uh, yeah, like because people have different levels of inflammation, like you said, as well as uh, different sources of inflammation and uh, autoimmunity. So yeah, it's a very, has to be tailored to the individual. Yeah, it is. Because you don't want to be like putting someone through a protocol that's irrelevant to them. 
like for example, like there's a lot of people, really well-intentioned people that are, they're like, yes, I have candida overgrowth. And that's just like the thing. They saw an article, they're like, I have all the symptoms. I have candida overgrowth. I'm going to do a candida protocol. I'm going to take the candida supplements. And like they're going and like treating themselves with this thing. It, be, it may be good for them. Um, and maybe because it is down-regulating inflammation, it's eating clean foods, like maybe that is. But they're kind of shooting in the dark if they don't run labs and see that's even what's going on there. Because first of all, candida albicans is a normal yeast that every almost every human has. You can measure that on labs. Some normal levels of yeast and fungus called the mycobiome, the yeast and fungus that are actually part of the good homeostatic landscape of a microbiome, the gastrointestinal system, it's actually normal. So understanding what's that, instead of like shooting in the dark and like hoping that it works, that's where a lot of my patients are at. It's like good with good intentions. Yeah. And look, there's these things are called great mimickers or great imitators for a reason. I mean, there's a lot of things that can look like candida overgrowth or CFO, small intestinal fungal overgrowth. And it's just because it looks like a duck doesn't mean it's a duck. It could be a, a duck imposter. It could be right. a goose. It could be a like a whatever a canary <laughs> with a, on a cost with a costume on. It's there's a lot of things that look like something that doesn't necessarily mean it's that. So labs can illuminate like what's actually going on there, and it may just be a, a really good candida imposter that's mm. going on. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you mentioned uh, like blood sugar uh, management uh, as one of the aspects of uh, inflammation. So uh, you know. I would imagine then, you know, this um, diabetes and hyperglycemia and hyperinsulinemia is going to cause inflammation and also promote uh, like autoimmunity. Oh my goodness. Yes. I mean, if you look at the statistics, when you have blood sugar problems, dysglycemia, metabolic syndrome, syndrome X, prediabetes, diabetes, these things double the risk factor of just about everything. They double oh. the, uh, heart attack and the leading cause of heart attack and stroke. They are, they shorten your telomeres, they increase oxidative stress, there's a link, they double risk of anxiety and depression, double risk of fatigue, they increase likelihood of autoimmune flares, like there's so much, like that's a foundational system you have to get sorted out to ever really reclaim your health. So if someone's dealing with that, that's pretty early on in the to-do list uh, from, right. from my standpoint. Hmm, yeah, and uh, usually that's, you know, blood sugar management or poor blood sugar also works in hand in hand in hand with like obesity and uh, excess visceral fat which then secretes more of these uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines into the bloodstream all the time so you're basically yeah. chronically inflamed all the time uh, on a habitual basis mm -hmm. oh my goodness yeah it's definitely true and and then you see all these people that are you know, thinner, but still have insulin resistance too, which it's like right. people need to realize that, yeah, it's like the people that are struggling with metabolic issues and weight loss resistance and obesity, that's something we need to look at and leptin resistance. But there are many people that have these metabolic issues, but they're thin. So society tells them, oh, like everything's fine because it's how you look. But the reality is it's amazing to me how many metabolic issues I find on labs on thin people too what they call skinny fat. I mean, I mean that's a, a term for it, but um, these uh, insulin resistance patterns in thin people need to be uh, talked about as well. Mm. So how would you uh, approach fixing uh, insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome? Uh, you also have like a ketoterian book. So do you find like a, a value for keto in uh, helping with this? Yes, yeah, so much so. So ketoterian, which is my first book, I actually refer to as 
in the book, I mentioned this concept of the inflammation spectrum in ketotarian actually first, because beta hydroxybutyrate is not just a way to burn fat, which is certainly part of that lipolysis and improving fat burning yes, mechanisms. That is true. But it's also a signaling molecule, an epigenetic modulator to do really cool things for our health, like downregulating inflammation, like the NF-kappa-B pathway, COX-2 pathway, NRP3 inflammasome, all these pro-inflammatory cytokines. Beta-hydroxybutyrate, the ketone, is a natural anti-inflammatory. That's an amazing tool that we use for people clinically. So uh, I talked about this concept of the inflammation spectrum in ketotarian. So yes, the ketogenic diet is a great tool to attenuate inflammation levels, to help support balanced inflammatory cascades, um, to not only leverage the benefits of ketosis, at least times of ketosis for people, but focusing on really nutrient-dense, clean ketogenic foods too, to really marry the benefits of both. So that's what I wanted to do with ketotarian. Uh, it's a mostly plant-based ketogenic way of eating. I'm not anti, you know, I'm not, um, I talk about my own journey in there of how I was a vegan for many years and how that evolved to ketotarian, which is still mostly plant-based, but it has pescatarian keto options, um, vegetarian keto and vegan keto. And um, I'm not anti-meat either. And I mentioned that in the book, like how, bring grass-fed beef in too, like, but it's just a clean nutrient-dense ketogenic diet is really what it is. Mm -hmm. um, and um yeah. So that's, that's an amazing tool. And intermittent fasting is part of that as well, which I'm able to explore my next book. It's called Intuitive Fasting. So it's kind of a part two of Ketotarian. It comes out early 2021. And it's really, uh, I'm continuing the conversation that I started in Ketotarian in the Intuitive Fasting book because I want people to use both of, both of these tools, which is a clean, nutrient-dense ketogenic diet, and intermittent fasting because they're really part of the same thing the more metabolically flexible somebody is the more they'll just randomly do time-restricted feeding and intermittent fasting and conversely the more someone is intermittent fasting the more they're going to be keto adapted yeah. both of them obviously you know this but for people that don't know they both increase beta hydroxybutyrate they both increase this anti-inflammatory pathway and autophagy and all these pro-antioxidant and longevity pathways and increasing stem cells and mitochondrial biogenesis, all the same cool stuff. They happen to both because they both put you in to ketosis. So I think that they're both amazing tools to lower inflammation levels uh, and do all this cool stuff that I need to get my patients to. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And they're very similar and very effective because like sometimes the most powerful thing to do isn't to add, but it's like sub sub subtract, yeah. <laughs> which would be like to fast or either like eliminate like some, yeah. some food groups, whether that be carbs or uh, you mm -hmm. know, other, other high sugar foods. Yeah, sometimes it's just giving your body a break um, and yeah, allowing it just time to repair because digesting food actually requires a lot of energy, especially for a system that's already stressed out. It's like stressing out an already stressed out system. So giving some moment of reprieve for your gut to repair, your immune system to repair is hugely therapeutic. So it is um, an amazing tool. But, you know, and these are the nuanced conversations that I'm having in both of the books is that these are tools to use, right? And more isn't always better. And people hear people like you and me that are in this world and they're like, more is better. And they're doing all these good right. things and they're just like doing all this stuff. And they are like not using the tool 
to like how to, how can they use a tool that works best for them so i'm having these nuanced conversations of macro variation and different uh intermittent fasting windows to keep things like leptin balanced because we don't want leptin too high but we don't want leptin too low either so we're talking about these different types of people like people that are thin that go in or women specifically that do intermittent fast and they're like fasting too much and it's throwing off their cycle or it's making them feel worse in the long term or it doesn't mean that you throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's a horrible analogy there, but it doesn't mean that you like don't fast at all because fasting's right. bad for women or fasting's bad for thyroid issues. That's yeah. a very broad sweeping statement. So no, how can we use this tool that works for you sustainably? It's not like black or white and there's a spectrum of these tools and how do you use them and context matters. And I want to have a contextual conversation about these tools and see the person can have they can find out how to use it for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, like you, you could also say that your exercise is bad because it causes stress <laughs> to your body. But if, if, <laughs> yeah. if fasting is also bad because it causes stress, so it always yeah. has to be taken at the right dose. And there's always like a specific exactly. amount that you need. And also yes. one of the one of the big problems that happens with fasting or like maybe like strict ketosis all the time is that your thyroid tends to get downregulate and that can cause like, you know, weight loss plateaus and uh, other hormonal issues. So yeah. Uh, the body kind of the body tends to do best when it gets exposed to these stressors in like a moderate amount and also like has enough time to recover and uh, like cycle back and forth be between them. Exactly. Yeah, these are tools that are just mimicking our ancestors in many ways that we're always stuck in this feasting mode, and that's messing our hormones up. But the solution isn't being too extreme the other way either. It's about finding that Goldilocks principle and not too high, not too low, but just right. And I want people to explore that. And you know, when I the reason why I'm calling the third book intuitive fasting is because I want people to gain body intuition. That we come, especially in the biohacking space, we come with a sense of like it works for us, so it works for everybody. And it's this sort of alpha energy that I think right. works awesome for some people and resonates for some people. Like if it works for you, keep doing it. But there's many people that aren't coming from that space and they're thinking like they're a failure or they, there's a lot of shame and anxiety in orthorexia, which is an eating disorder about eating healthy. And I think a lot of people have that in this space unintentionally because mm. of all this really good information that's falling on. It's like too much information for the vessel for them to receive it. And so I want people to kind of find uh, intuition to know what their body loves and what their body hates. And this is bio-individuality. This is the heart of functional medicine. But like, it's hard to know what's intuition when you're in a state of imbalance and a state of inflammation because it is it intuition or is it angriness is it intuition or insatiable cravings like people could be like oh my gosh it's i, I my body just needs that donut I, it's my intuition that's not yeah. your intuition <laughs> that's hormone imbalance that's like dysglycemia uh so you have to calm the imbalance you have to calm inflammation to hear the still small voice of your intuition and when you do that when you get metabolic flexibility, you can actually know, I'm hungry, I eat. I'm not hungry, I don't eat. There's a time for eating, there's a time for fasting. But I, you have to get to that place first. So people like to throw that word around on social media, like, oh, I'm intuitive eating. <laughs> Talk to my patients about intuitive eating. Yeah. Their body's in balance. They don't know what's up and what's down. Right. But we can get there. We can get there. But we have to put the work in to get there.
yeah completely yeah. like if you if everyone were to follow intuitive eating then or like you know most of uh, america and most of the western world has already followed this intuitive eating they're eating what they want when they want and how, how much yes. they want so uh, yeah it's, it's, a, it's a matter yeah. of having to build up a certain level of this intuition and teach it the right yeah. way before you exactly. can like trust it completely yeah they don't even they don't even know what their body's telling them because there's so much signaling problems you have to be properly signaling to know what your intuition is Mm, yeah um maybe let's talk a little bit about the food as well um like who who would uh maybe consider doing like a regular keto diet as versus a ketotarian type of diet who would be like mm. a good candidate for it and uh, what signs do you look out for well i mean and let me and i've talked about this before so i want people to maybe but i haven't talked about it that much i um in my functional medicine clinic my job is to find out what works for their body, not make any food dogma or any food preference that I may have for myself and apply that to everybody. It's to find out, I get out of my own way and really just serve the patient and see what needs, what their body needs. There's a time and a place for even carnivore diets. So I use a well-formulated nutrient-dense carnivore diet as an elimination diet approach for a time for people, because I'm dealing with people with really reactive systems like histamine intolerance and salicylate intolerance and oxalate intolerance and um, uh, SIBO and really big autoimmune flares. So there's a time and place for all of these tools. These are all tools in the toolbox that when context applies can be used. So when I wrote about ketotarian, it really was a conversation about the hyper-focus of um, macros over quality of food that I think was being seen in the earlier-ish ketogenic explosion, not the early really, but the, the I would say the fad movement on the ketogenic right. diet uh, a couple years ago, um, where they were just like anything as long as it's high fat, low carb, and just count your macros, which is really born out of the diet industry really. Um, and they just were like doing that so much and not looking at the quality of foods and the second part of the conversation that I wanted to have in Ketotarian was there was a different way to do go keto. And there was a lot of people that were being more plant-based, but they were carbitarians. They were just right. providing a lot of, getting a lot of high lectin, high glycemic, high sugar foods and starch and carb and grains. So how can we come to the middle to find a way that you can be fat adapted, you can tap into ketosis that is a more nutrient dense, uh, and, I, and I think a lot more sustainable for long-term for people too. And then they can layer in these omnivore foods that I think are really healthy as well. Um, and I have a conversation about the bioavailability of nutrients that being entirely plant-based is not going to be optimal for many people. Does that mean that we, there are some people because of religious reasons or like ethical convictions that we, can we make them their plant-based diet? better? Yeah, we can. And I teach how to do that in the book. There's a lot of vegan keto options, but I also educate them on the fact that the bioavailability of nutrients, like a long chain omega uh, fatty acids, the um, B vitamins, obviously iron, uh, that I want people to maybe adopt some of these pescatarian keto or vegetarian keto options. Um, and most of the time people will do that because they want to feel better. And I teach them about regenerative farming and teach them about the sustainability of these ways of eating. Um, so I think I wanted to have that nuanced conversation, you know, and most people are so tribal about these things that it's like the 
vegan world versus the carnivore world. And like, I, to me, that just does not interest me at all. But how can we come together and really use food as medicine together? And that's what I, I wanted to do with the book. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree that, you know, the kind of people can do any kind of diet, uh, which one suits them the most depends a lot on, yeah, like their condition. And, or maybe like, maybe if some people have like some particular sensitivities towards uh, some plants and uh, some other foods, then they can eliminate them. Uh, or like if people have intolerance to dairy and, uh, you know, cheese or like, you know, fish and those things, mm -hmm. then they can eliminate those as well. So, but in the kind of main principle is still to kind of follow this whole foods based type of uh, diet that you yeah. uh, minimize the inflammation uh, and uh, yeah, allow your body to get the nutrients it needs to function properly. Exactly. And, and also too, it's like, I'm not saying everybody that, that is keto or eats a lower carb, high fat diet has to be strictly ketotarian. What I also like what's happened over the time since ketotarians come out is that there's some people that are just implementing some of these ketotarian concepts in their other nutrient dense like they're still omnivores and they're still eating um, like a clean nutrient dense ketogenic diet with some vegan keto and vegetarian keto options. And that's a really cool thing. That's variety. It's good for your gut microbiome. It's good from a supporting detoxification pathways. There's a lot of good uh, benefits to that. So it's not either or even then. I think that there's, it's just different concepts for people to integrate wellness into their life. Mm -hmm. Uh, are there like any particular foods that you think are like completely off limits that you don't advise anyone to eat? Mm. Not, I'd say this is like in the inflammation spectrum, I really wanted people to re try to go off of foods that are known to be inflammatory and then re reintroduce each one and see what your body loves and what your body hates. Cause I want people to have that end of one experiment for themselves to know, this doesn't serve me. I love feeling better more than I miss that food. So, but I am fully aware that sometimes reintroduction, they may not notice a, a obvious change, but I know clinically it's not going to be the best food for them. Um, so I want people to really learn about their bodies and finding out their own bio-individuality bio when it comes to this stuff. But what I call the core four in in the inflammation spectrum are the four foods that are most likely to cause a disruption of the microbiome and really wreck, uh, drive insulin levels up, drive inflammation levels up. And that's gonna be grains, particularly gluten-containing grains, but um, all grains have some level of that potentiality. Number two would be industrial seed oils, like uh, vegetable oil, canola oil. Um, third would be added sugar, which should be no, a no-brainer for people. And then fourth would be conventional dairy i say that with a slight caveat i have a nuanced conversation in the book about beta a1 casein beta a2 casein and goats versus and camels and all the other things that are better than maybe conventionally raised cows but for the sake of simplicity now i'm just saying dairy um but i know there are better versions of dairy and cultured dairies and you know i'm not making a blanket statement on that but for the sake of today's conversation, I would put dairy on that core four. So those are the four foods that are most likely to like wreck your microbiome, drive inflammation levels up, trigger molecular mim mimicry, increased intestinal permeability, all this stuff I don't want for people. Uh, those are the bigger insulters. Mm, yeah. Yeah, those seed oils that tend to be one of the most pro-inflammatory foods <laughs> that in the, in the food supply. And uh, they're also like one of the most predominant uh, ingredients in like processed foods. So yeah, like every there is so much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you have to kind of 
even if you are very cautious about it, then you can still get exposed to them uh, through like cooking or uh, in restaurants and whatnot. So yeah, mm-hmm. pretty yeah. <laughs> powerful stuff. Uh, and I also agree that with the quality of food, uh, is a big factor. Like, uh, is there like a difference between, let's say, like organic food and uh, this pesticide sprayed food on the on the microbiome and inflammation? Yeah, I mean, the quality of food is so important because it's not just the food itself; it's the way that it's raised. And that's sometimes the conversation that people want to have about grains and gluten is that well is it the gluten or is it the way is it the pesticides is it the glyphosate is it all of these things i do think it's that's part of it too i think it's the overconsumption of it i do think it's the hybridization of it i do think it's the genetic modification of certain grains and it's the spraying of it it's all of the above um so it's not just one thing and we have that conversation in the book too i, I understand the fact that there are people that can get these ancient grains that may even have gluten in them, um, but they don't have the same reaction as the you know regular bread. So I understand that. And that's why I want people to try to bring these things back in. And when we, in the inflammation spectrum, when I do the reintroduction part of it, it's like I parse all those out. So it's like, okay, if you're gonna try einkorn and like these ancient grains, like, yeah, separate them from like the conventional like wheat right. bread. Um, so you can see, maybe you can have sourdough bread or an ancient grain and you're going to have no problem with it. Does that mean that should be the staple of your diet and you should be eating it in copious amounts for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? (laughs) Probably not, but, um, I want people to have as much variety and flexibility and a grace and a lightness to this stuff. So they're not so obsessed about things that really don't really add a day to their life. Yeah. Yeah, and I also think that the kind of frequency is uh, important so that if you mm-hmm. have, let's say, even if you have like, you know, the worst of the worst bread or cake, like <laughs> every few months or so, then it's not going to be a problem and your body is going to yeah. be able to recover. So it's the frequency. If you do it every day, then it's going to be a problem. But if you do it every yeah. once in a while, then it should, if you're healthy and if you are like metabolically flexible, then it shouldn't wreck you and it shouldn't like wipe exactly. you out for like months. Yeah, that's that the analogy that I use for that. And that's a really good way of putting it is that like, we have to put that proverbial cast on your metabolism and your immune system for a couple of months, like let it heal, let it get strong. But from then you can take the cast off, do push ups, do yard work. And like, you should be able to handle some stress and be okay. Now, some people without immunity, they'll never be fully resilient and be able to like have that. They could have flares up even for a little bit. But some people can it's that back to that mug analogy if your mm-hmm. if your mug is bigger thank god for the bigger mug like yeah. what a blessing right. not everybody has a big mug so a lot of my patients have smaller mugs and they can get away with that stuff but if you're born with the bigger mug if you've healed and emptied that mug that mug out and awesome you can have that cake or that beer or whatever you want occasionally and you'll be fine the body is amazingly resilient for those bigger mug people for sure for sure uh, and yeah, like if you if you constantly if you don't like allow the body to heal, then it's not going to heal. So you have to kind of have, distance yourself from the toxin or the stressor for at least a short while uh, to allow the body to kind of start to heal itself. So that's why yeah. I believe that maybe like a short elimination diet can be very effective for a lot of people to mm-hmm. eliminate all the potential allergens and uh, things that they may react to as to see like, first of all, to get, get this awareness, but at the same time also mm-hmm. allow the body to take a break uh, from them. Totally. It's serving more than one reason, but it's that, that break that allows their body to center. And that's that intuition that I was talking about that when they start knowing, Oh, look, I 
that food doesn't make me feel good. And then that's the transition transition from like a program or a diet or a protocol to like, no, this is just my life. There's no wagon that I can fall off of. It's not, I'm off the wagon now. It's just like <laughs> your life is the wagon <laughs> and you love feeling so freaking good that you'd rather feel good than you miss that food that makes you feel really lousy. But you don't know that until you calm things down a little bit and actually actually know what your body's telling you. Mm, yeah. Uh, what, what do you think about uh, this, the kind of the idea that the, we are not exposed to that many like uh, dirt and uh, microbes and bacteria in our life where like in this very sterile uh, environment, that is going to have like a negative effect on the microbiome. Like what do you think about that? Oh my goodness, it's such a, a powerful thing that it's not talked a lot about. Uh, it's not talked enough about. And, and I put myself in that same category. We don't talk about it enough. It's a very, very important. Um, it's not just your gut microbiome per se. I mean, even though that's impacting your gut microbiome, but it's your skin microbiome too. It's your mouth microbiome. Uh, this is very, very important. And it's part of the immune system as well. And um, obviously, that also impacts the gut microbiome too. It's all really interconnected. But um, yeah, it's it's not just about you what you're eating. It's the environmental things that are certainly important. These microbiome, skin microbiome disruptors, over sanitization of things, and in turn, um, that impacts your gut microbiome too. It's it's a definitely important factor that um, people need to be mindful of. Of Yes, be clean. Yes, like have proper sanitation. But there's a balance. There's a balance act. And I think that sometimes in a, in the world today, we like to have extremes. And it's like, we go too far so easily. Uh, and like, it's like you said with stress and like, well, exercise is bad. And like, you couldn't get stressed. Like, we know how ridiculous that is. But that hormesis, that like, Goldilocks principle is so important and we all need to be mindful of that, that extremes rare, very rarely are extremes great for sustainability when it comes to the human race. And we kind of have to find that balance. It's not an easy thing, but we have to kind of cultivate that. And that's sanitation and foods and all the stuff we're talking about. Mm, yeah, exactly. And like, I, I wouldn't recommend to people to not wash their vegetables or something, but I, would, yeah. but I would maybe say that, you know, you should get your hands dirty, uh, you know, maybe go into the forest mm -hmm. and climb a tree and yeah. uh, go into the beach. And uh, yeah, that's sort, of, that's sort of microbiome and that's sort of dirt <laughs> where you're more yeah. exposed to the nature, not, not uh, like this industrial dirt that is uh, still, yeah. still harmful exactly. and comes with like, the other chemicals and that sort of thing. Yeah, great, great uh, differentiation there. I mean, I, how can you get your microbiome to something that it's co-evolved with for a long time? How can you reintroduce an old friend? That's what you're trying to do. How do you reintroduce your microbiome with an old friend? And that's getting out in nature. That's getting dirty within reason. And, 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 and that is exponentially powerful for strengthening the human immune system over time. Hmm, yeah. One thing I want to maybe wrap things up with as well is like uh, sunlight and vitamin D. Like I, I, I know that there's a huge association between like low vitamin D and autoimmunity. Yeah, certainly. Uh, is, and the optimal range in functional medicine where we uh, measure that for patients is about 60 to 100, uh, 80 to 100, I guess, if you're looking at a tighter range. Most people are deficient. They're not, we're not spending enough time outside. It's responsible for over 2,000 different genetic pathways. 
it acts as a pro hormone, really, and we call it vitamin D, but it's actually the king of all hormones and the thyroid's the queen of all hormones. And both of those, every cell of your body has a thyroid and a vitamin D receptor site. Many people have really impaired functions of both. And uh, we have to look at that. And your body needs healthy fats for the conversion um, of sunlight into vitamin D. So these fat soluble vitamins are not just vitamin D, but are vastly um, deficient in the Western diet, true vitamin A, vitamin K2 and vitamin D. Um, these are all things that I look at optimizing for my patients. And um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a few things. It's, it's impaired gut health because some many people are taking vitamin D supplements because they're not outside enough, but their gut's not absorbing these nutrients. So we need to remember we aren't just what we eat and what we supplement. We are what we absorb. And we're back to that gut health component of it. Second is we look at different methylation gene variants that can slow down the conversion and, and the optimization of vitamin D levels, like VDR gene variant. So these heterozygous and homozygous VDR gene variants that people are supplementing, they're just not supplementing high enough because they have these stop signs at the gene that codes for the enzyme to actually optimize vitamin D levels of so the receptor site of it, the bioavailability of it. So, um, and then it's, of course, getting outside whenever you can and getting enough healthy sunlight um, and taking into consideration your skin tone. And I'm not advocating people getting burnt, but like going outside and getting direct sunlight, whatever that means, depending on where you live in the world in relationship to the equator and family history, et cetera, et cetera. Like be smart about it, but people need to get sunlight and it's really hard to get vitamin D through food. Um, you're going to get some of it in certain like uh, fish and ghee and clarified butter and stuff like that, but not in ample amounts. It's really the sunshine vitamin for a reason. Um, and supplement comes into play there too. So I like typically blends of vitamin D3 with K2, sometimes other fat soluble vitamins too, like um, getting true vitamin A uh, with that because that synergistic effect of all those fat soluble vitamins can be really, really powerful at a healthy, supporting a healthy immune system and a, a healthy inflammatory pathways cool reasons to have optimized that people should just be more aware of yeah absolutely yeah it's a another important thing that people tend to take for granted or like not not even know that it's important so yeah get get into the nature yeah. and get into the sunlight mm-hmm yeah awesome uh well uh it was a great talking with you and uh, we'll yeah. start wrapping it up um when does your uh, next uh, book about fasting come out? It comes for um, intuitive fa fasting to grow in body intuition using the tool of intermittent fasting and a clean ketogenic diet, which is fasting mimicking for many people. Um, so it's synergistic of both. And we talk about clean carb cycling and all this stuff to keep all your hormones ha happy too. Awesome. And uh, where can people learn more about you and your work? Uh, everything's at drwillcole.com, um, D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. We offer free health evaluations if people do want to get set up a webcam consult to see if functional medicine is right for them. We offer those and have for the past 12 years. So uh, that's there. There's lots of free content, I've written articles for over the past 12 years too. So um, tons of stuff at, at drwillcole.com. Awesome. And my last question is, uh, what's this one piece of advice or habit you wish you adopted sooner? Mm. Wow, that's a good. Um, you 
cannot stress and shame your way into wellness. And I think a lot of times people think, oh my gosh, lately, especially personalities like mine, like I just get like, it's kind of obsessive about things. Uh, that's not a way to come into wellness with. Another way of putting it is you can't heal a body you hate. You can't obsess your way into wellness. And I want people to know that, that all of these tools are meaningless if you're coming into it with a sense of arduousness and obsession. That these are tools, amazing tools to use, but they should be used with an, uh, an ethos of like self-respect and being like, well, I love my body enough. I love feeling good so much that I want to do good things for it. Not coming from a place of like, uh, it's, it's, I, I don't want people to come in and having an eating disorder disguised as a wellness practice. And I think that's a problem for some people. Yeah, absolutely. And it wouldn't be like sustainable if you, it no. can work in the short term if you like grind it through and uh, punish yourself, mm -hmm. but you're going to, you know, fall off the yeah. wagon and you're going to, yeah, not at least you're not going to enjoy it. And it's not going to be that sustainable. Exactly. Yeah, right. It's, it's such a good point. Even if it is quote unquote sustainable, it, it probably won't be. But even if it is, if you, if, even if you end up doing it for years, it's going to be such a source of dread and anxiety. What quality of life do you have? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah, that's a good point to start wrap it up. So it was good talking with you and yeah, looking forward yes, to your future. Thank you for having work. me. Thank you so much.